in fifth grade at recess, me and my then best buddy started playing a little pickup game. It quickly turned uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, on the playground is where we spent most of our days, and people started acting a fool and all that, and suddenly I'm forgetting the lyrics. But he was feeling good about himself. You know, like the kind of good people start to feel about themselves when they just start karate. Um, he just went from a white belt to whatever belt's next. I think it might just be like off-white. And so he's got an off-white belt. We're playing basketball. He uh, goes to shoot it. He's about four foot two. I'm a six foot two in fifth grade. I didn't really grow, grow much since then. And so I just stuffed it right down in his face. Well, he gets mad. And as an off-white belt, he comes at me with just a flying kick. And I'm not really sure what to do in this moment. I dodge the kick. No, I'm just playing. I'm way too uncoordinated in fifth grade. Remember this size. I'm like a young puppy dog. I'm just running over everything. I take his kick to the face. Um, but on the way to taking that kick to the face, I, uh, I was watching a lot of Dragon Ball Z at the time. And so I threw a punch at his face. Uh, connected pretty good. Right in his eye. Um, needless to say... I didn't get invited to his birthday party at the end of that week. You see, that was the one thing we were all looking forward to. I went to his kindergarten birthday party, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade birthday party. And here at the end of my elementary school career, I did not get invited to his fifth grade birthday party. This is the party to go to. This is the party that you wanted in on. He had a Super Nintendo. His parents, they would order pizza. And I'm talking about like you can get three, four, five six, sometimes seven pieces of pizza. They're not skimping out on you. That would be followed up by ice cream. That would be followed up with a very loose curfew of midnight. Not really curfew, but lights out time. If you were quiet, you know, just enjoying your Super Nintendo time, you could probably push it to three, just depending on if his parents would wake up or not. And I knew all this was going down at the end of the week. And now my invite was taken away. Why? It's because I punched him in the face. Shouldn't my invite have been taken away? Yeah, absolutely. Should he have ninja kicked me in the middle of a game of basketball? No, probably not. So we went from best friends to all of a sudden, I'm trying to figure out why I cannot get into this guy's birthday party. And so the weekend comes. He lives about four blocks up from me. And so what do I do? I do what any petty fifth grader would do. I get on my GT flyer, and I ride out in front of his house, and I just do ovals, not even circles. They're just ovals out in front of his house. And everybody that comes into his birthday, I'm just like, hey, what's up? Hey, are you coming in here? No, I punched him. And then I just keep riding around on my bike until eventually his parents come out and they're like, hey, you got to go home. This is getting ridiculous. We're going to look at a guy today that wanted into a party that he did not yet have an invitation to. He was a big fan of the person and everything being celebrated within this party, but he was missing something, and not necessarily because he punched somebody in the face, more because his people probably punched a lot of people in the face. His name was Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. We will talk more about that. We will be in Acts chapter 10 today, and we're picking up on an idea that we left off on in Mark chapter 3 last week, in that all these people from all these different regions around where Jesus was doing ministry, where he had to retreat out to, all these people Jews and Gentiles, regions of both, but also regions where they were mixed, all came together in one place. And we talked about how that was just the beginning stages, the first sign of a kingdom of heaven that is so diverse, so much bigger than anybody could have imagined, not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile people as well. And so today we look at the story where the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 
comes down and he falls on the Gentiles. They speak in tongues. They get baptized. It is an incredible, incredible thing. Last week, we looked at life that was on the move with Jesus and Jesus being under pressure from people from three different kinds of relationships. Today in Acts 10, we will continue to look at five aspects of life on the move with Jesus now that the Spirit has descended upon us, the Gentiles. So, we're going, we normally in this church, we go four to six if we're feeling real crazy and we want to get to lunch a little late, eight verses a Sunday. This morning, don't worry about it, we're going to cover all of chapter 10, it's just 48 verses. We'll be here till this evening, but I feel like we need to really practice fasting as a church anyway. It's not something we do a lot, so we're going to make it through. We're going to make it through in 30 minutes, Jacob, I promise. All right, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So we have Cornelius. Who is Cornelius? Cornelius is first a soldier, not just a soldier, but a real bad dude, a Leonidas-type guy from the movie 300. He is a centurion. That meant he was in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. He was a part of something called the Italian cohort, which was 600 men under six centurions that had up to 1,000 auxiliary soldiers at their need. Um, just think of it as this guy was like the head of Cobra Kai, okay, if you're a Karate Kid fan. This guy was wealthy. This isn't something that's necessarily stated within the text, but if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that this guy would have made up to six times more than the average soldier during that time. Now, this is seemingly an insignificant detail, but if you look at the story that's actually being set up here, this is pretty important because there's a contrast here from Cornelius, this Gentile Roman soldier, this centurion who is wealthy, compared to Peter, who is about to enter into the story. He wasn't just a soldier, though. What we see is he was a God-fearer. That meant that he was a Gentile that was Jewish-ish, all right? He hadn't been fully converted into Judaism, but he was a fan of Judaism, not yet a follower of it, but a fan of it. He upheld two of the practices of Judaism, one being prayer and the other being the giving of alms, which just meant taking care of the poor. What we see here in the life of Cornelius is that you could be a God-fearer and not be a Jesus follower. You could be a God-fearer and not fully converted into Judaism. And God was at work in all of this. God was going to do something here in the life of Cornelius that was going to be huge that actually would lead to me and you being able to come to know Jesus. What Cornelius was was today's equivalent of somebody who's just very religious but completely lacked a relationship with Jesus. Now, Cornelius has a need, and that need is the gospel. That need is Jesus, which meant someone had to tell Cornelius about Jesus. And again, God is putting everything into place. See, Cornelius wanted into the party, but he did not have an invitation. Not yet. In all of this, we get our first point today, and that is that life on the move with Jesus is a life that has been saved by Jesus. It is a life that puts trust in Jesus to save that life, to save your life from the consequence of your sin, which is God's wrath, which we are fully deserving. Now, I know this is usually the part, the sharing of the gospel, 
the entering into right relationship with God that usually comes at the end of the sermon, but this is something we have to get right from the very beginning today. He was a God-fearer. He was a fan of God. He was a fan of the things of God, but he was not yet a follower of Jesus, and the only way for him to be saved was for him to be a follower of Jesus. And so if that for us, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of, okay, am I a follower of Jesus? Or am I just a fan of Jesus that have been showing up to church for all of these years, doing all these Christian-ish things, doing all these religious-ish things, but I haven't actually put my faith in Jesus to save me from my sin. I haven't actually asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin. I haven't actually looked at Jesus on the cross and said, you took my place on that cross. And on that cross, you took my unrighteousness, my dirtiness, my brokenness, my sin, my shame. You died for that. And in turn, what did I get? I got a clean slate. I got let off the hook. I was made clean. I was made righteous before God. And so now when God looks at me, he doesn't see something that is imperfect, unclean, broken, messy, dirty. What he sees is someone that has been washed, been cleaned, been covered by the blood of his son. And so the question for us that we have to wrestle with is, have I put my trust in Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross? Do I trust in a risen Savior that was victorious over my sin, that was victorious over the sin of the world, who has taken me, restored me, and repurposed me and sent me back out? Have I put my trust in that? We have a friend who I found out recently um, is a big fan of the Texas Rangers, um, Real big fan. I had no idea how big of a fan this person was, and now it's, it's a little bit concerning. Um, they, I would say they're, they're past being a fan of the Texas Rangers. They are a follower of the Texas Ranger, and quite uh, Texas Rangers, there's not just one of them, uh, in quite a literal sense. This person has been following the Texas Rangers team from stadium to stadium, game to game, every game of the playoffs. You think about that dedication. You think about that sacrifice. You think about the love in which that person has for this team, for this organization. This isn't somebody that's sitting at home on the couch watching their favorite team on TV. This is someone that is involved. This is someone that might as well be on staff with the organization. If they're not, hopefully they are sometime soon. They can write off some of those expenses for getting to every game, every hotel, every bit of gas. It's getting crazy. Do we have that same kind of dedication when it comes to Jesus? Are we just a fan of Jesus on the outside looking in, thinking, man, I want to be a part of that? Or are we on the inside saying, man, Jesus, I'm here. Here's my life submitted to you. I want to follow you with whatever it takes. Next thing we see in this story. Got to move quick. I'm telling you guys, buckle up. It's going to be a quick one. We've got two visions. We've got the vision of Cornelius in verses 3 through 8, and we've got the vision of Peter in verses 9 through 16. The vision of Cornelius. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. This wasn't confusing at all. Go to a guy named Simon's house, get a guy named Simon, not the guy that owns the house, but the guy that's staying in the house. His name is also Simon. Go get him, bring him back to you. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. 
Now we have Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And the voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, eat and kill. And all the men in the church that ever hunted said amen because Peter got to go hunt without a hunting license. He didn't have to win the lottery. Praise God for all of it. I'm with you, Janet. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I will not eat this bacon that is delicious that you have made clean. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I added something there just so you know. That's not what Scripture said fully. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. We've got Cornelius' vision here. While not yet a believer, an angel appeals to, appears to Cornelius, and he says that God has taken notice of you. God has seen your devotion. God is giving him a reminder of who he is and the things that he has done that God smiles down upon. And then he gives him a mission. He says, go get Peter. What does Cornelius do? Immediately he obeys. Immediately he sends his men to go get Peter. He never questions anything. He acts, and he acts immediately. We can ask the question why. I think probably because this was a a military man, and he noticed that there was a power greater than him, and is telling him to go do something, and he went with that mission, and he ran with it. But then you've got Peter. You've got a guy who you would think would be, yeah, Jesus, whatever you need, I'm going to go do that. Whatever you call for, I'm going to go do that because I've argued with you before and it hasn't gone really well for me. And so what does Peter do? He does the same thing Peter always does. He keeps arguing again. It's noon. Peter goes to the top of the roof. He's hungry. He asks for food. He falls asleep. He has a crazy hunger dream called a vision. God lays out a buffet of ritually unclean foods And what does God do? He calls them clean. Bacon is back on the menu, and again, we praise God for that. Peter, Peter has a hard time with this. Why does Peter have a hard time with this? Because it breaks Levitical law. It goes against what is written in Leviticus 11. Peter doesn't fully understand what God is up to, but what God is slowly starting to unveil to Peter Peter, this is less about the animals and the unclean things on that sheet over there. But what this is about is the Gentiles. What I am doing is I am making the Gentiles clean. I am cleansing them. And what does Peter do? He refuses it once. He refuses it twice. He refuses it three times. But God keeps after Peter. God doesn't dismiss Peter from his service. God continues to work on his heart. Once again, this is a pattern we see in the life of Peter. We also see that this is a really big deal culturally. God is calling him to go to Cornelius' house. Jews and Gentiles, as we know from reading Mark over the last 17,000 weeks, is that those two groups of people do not mix. Why don't they mix? Because it is unclean. Not only is it unclean, but this would have been really bad for Peter, Peter being a person of action, Peter being the guy that would eventually, at this point, it has already happened, take out his sword, swing it against a Roman soldier, cutting his ear off. Maybe he was a bad shot. Maybe he was aiming for the ear. Maybe he was aiming for the neck, and he just didn't quite swing that sword right. 
Peter's a man of action. Peter's a man who does not like his land being um, occupied by an opposing team. And this man isn't just a Gentile. This man is a Roman centurion, which means not only is he on the opposing team, but he is captain of the other team. Now, the Texas Ranger, uh, Rangers, man, I keep thinking there's only one of them this morning. The Texas Rangers, um, by the great favor and will of uh, our God, uh, won, the Texas, won the World Series. Man, me and Texas, I'm thinking Texas is just the whole world now. Okay. Won the World Series this week. Where did they win the World Series? Right here in Arizona. How are we feeling about that? Okay, it's good to know. We have Jews and Gentiles in the room this morning. And here we are united in Jesus for the kingdom. Good to know. Basically what is taking place is this, is if the Texas Rangers, all of them, won the World Series here in Arizona and said, you know what, since we won the World Series here, we're just going to go ahead and stay here. You know what, this isn't just our stadium, but this is our city. This isn't just our city, but this is our region, and they would occupy our region. Now, how would we feel about that? <laughs> you know, when I was thinking through this in preparation, that was going a lot different, but uh, we're, we're mixed on it, all right? And uh, I'll just say, in this moment, let's pretend we all cheered for the Diamondbacks every single game, not just the one where they whooped the Rangers, and uh, let's, let's just say that we would be really sad about it. This is not just a big deal culturally. Thank you so much for playing along this morning. This was a big deal spiritually. This was God's way of saying that I haven't just come to save one people. This is a really big deal. This is God's coming on the scene and saying, I have come to save all people. Peter, would you just open your eyes? Peter, would you stop thinking about how this is going, what you used to know? Would you stop thinking that this is going just against the old covenant here and see that I am trying to do something new? Peter, I am trying to come. I am saving every nation. Every language, every race, every socioeconomic status. Peter, I am trying to do something big. I am trying to bring salvation and grace to every single race on the face of this planet. So what do we see here? What do we see here in the life of Peter? What do we see here in the life and the move of the Spirit? We see our second point this morning, and that is that a life on the move with Jesus is a life where Jesus calls the shots. A life that is on the move with Jesus is a life where Jesus calls the shots. I think we need to realize as people that can be pretty self-centered, people that are pretty consumed in our own lives, in our own worlds, in our own calendars, in our own social media, in our own influence, that God does not require our approval. But what God desires is our obedience. I'll say that again. God does not require our approval, but he desires our obedience. What does that mean? It means when God says to do something, we don't have to like it. That means when God says to go and do something, we can wrestle with it. But when God says to go and do something, we still need to do it. In the life of Peter, and certainly in our lives, this means that we need to go and talk to that person. We have given the great commission as the greatest mission of our lives, where we take the gospel to other people. We make disciples. We see them baptized. We teach them to obey. We do that until the outer limits, the outer stretches of the earth. That means that we go and talk to that person that's hard to talk to. 
even if they have a different political party that they are a part of. This means that we go and we talk to that person that God has told us, hey, go share the gospel with that person. I know it's going to be awkward. I know you're going to be scared. Go and do it anyway. But what if they're at a different socioeconomic status than I am? Go and talk to that person who is living a life of sin, who needs the hope of the gospel to shed light and truth upon their lives. Well, God, I can't talk to them because they have a different sexual preference than me. God says, go and talk to that one person that you're uncomfortable with talking to. Well, God, I can't do that because that person is of a different race, a different nationality than me. What this story shows us is God doesn't care about any of that. What God cares about is grace coming upon every single person, that every single person would turn to Jesus to trust him to save them from their sin, that they would look to Jesus to save their lives, that they would not spend an eternity in hell, but they would look to him, put their trust in him, and spend an eternity with him. What this tells us is that the gospel does not discriminate The gospel saved you out of your sin, and your sin may look different than someone else's sin, but let's not play sin favoritism. Let's realize that we were lifted up out of the mess that we were in, and we've been given the opportunity to go help other people up out of the messes that they're in. But not only do we talk to them, we go to them, we love them, and we serve them, and we have some reasons why. We do that so that God can bring them into relationship with him. That is what we want first and foremost. We want to see God move in their lives. But it's such a bigger picture than just that because it's not about God just moving in their lives because when God moves in our lives, what we see in God moving in our lives is that we took the gospel to other people around us. And so now when this person gives their life to Jesus, then they go to their friend groups and the gospel starts to spread bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and we're about to see this in the life of Cornelius. Why do we do this? We do this so that we can be a part of the blessing that it is to be included in God's bigger story. And we do this so that Jesus will receive the glory. The next thing we see is a point of application. This is in verses 17 through 33. I'll paraphrase it for us. Uh, If you have the ESV version of this, it says that Peter is perplexed. I don't know why. I just really love that Peter is perplexed and the Bible just says it outright. What we see is Peter questioning the vision that this angel has given him, this vision that he received from the Lord, and then all of a sudden, who's home? Hey, is this Peter's house? I mean, is this Simon's house? Is there a guy named Simon that's in there? Is this, is this the house of Simon's? Are you a tanner? I thought you were just, just roommates with Simon's. Okay. All right. Well, we're looking for a guy named Simon. Um, if, if he's here, tell him to come out. The Spirit tells Peter to go with him. Peter, when the Spirit shows up, has no hesitation. Well, there is a little bit of hesitation. It says that they left in the morning. I don't know if that's because they wanted to get to know each other, hang out a little bit. Um, Cornelius's guys, they show up. There's a group of them. Peter, uh, they go in the next morning, but before they go, he gathers his guys, so maybe there's gonna, he's thinking there's going to be some kind of street fight, maybe a fifth-grade basketball court fight that's about to go on. I'm not really sure, but he's getting ready for it. And then our third point that we see out of all of this is that a life on the move with Jesus stays moving even while questioning. It stays moving even while questioning. Peter was still questioning all of this. 
He had a vision from the Lord, and now the Spirit shows up, and he says, go and do. And he still hasn't quite figured all of it out just yet. So he, what does he do? He remains obedient. Even while wrestling, even while questioning, he goes when the Spirit says go. And for us, in this church, in our lives, I guarantee you that you will have questions when it comes to following Jesus. Questions like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? God, what is going to be next? God, I'm completely perplexed. I'm completely lost. Holy Spirit, I need some clarity. I need some direction here. Tell me what way to go. And when he goes, we obey. God, I don't know how in the world you are going to use this thing. But God, I trust you. And a lot of times that's what it comes down to is when God says go, we don't actually know what is going on. And a lot of times when God says go and we go, we get to 20% of the way through it. We think, man, this should be over with. This should be done. We get 40% of the way through it. This should be over with, God. I've never hurt this much in my life. I've never been expanded so much in my life. You've never stretched me and grown me so much in my life. And God says, just keep going. Just keep going. And so in faith, we put baby step together after baby step after baby step, and we keep on moving. God kind of, uh, he kind of tricked me recently. Um, he kind of tricked me because he made this really big mountain in the state of Arizona. It is called Humphreys Peak. And upon this mountain and upon the desire that he put in my heart to climb this mountain, um, he tricked me even while climbing it. And so what we see here is a, a picture of Humphreys Peak. This is kind of right where you break the tree line up in Flagstaff. This is what I thought the closest one to me was the peak. All right, I've already hiked five and a half miles at this point, and I've got to get up to that peak. And I'm thinking, all right, that's like, what, 800 feet away. That's no problem. Um, I'm not the smartest guy. So there's this thing called uh, perception and uh, perspective that kind of fought against me here. You see, that one is the tallest in this picture. Why? Because it's the closest to me. And uh, we're actually up in the clouds here. A cloud just moved out of the way right before I took this picture. So we start climbing. And I think, okay, I've just got to get to that peak. That's all I got to do. I start to get vertigo. The elevation starts to mess with me. I start thinking, I'm going to die. I'm looking down five miles on this side, five miles on that side, and thinking if the wind blows one mile per hour faster, this church is going to be without a pastor. My family's going to be without a father and a husband. Uh, And so I just start bear crawling. I look ridiculous, okay? It's a lot of person to be climbing up the mountain. People are like, is that Bigfoot? I don't know. And so I finally get to that peak. Next picture. When I get to that peak, I quickly realize that there is a, that is a false peak. That is a peak that you think is the top of the mountain, and it's definitely not the top of the mountain. Why? Because there's not a sign that says, hey, this is the top of the mountain. And so you got to go to the next top of the mountain. And guess what? That one's fake too, all right? Then you got to go to the next one. And that's where I took this picture where I thought, for real, I'm just going to leave my phone here, and they're going to find my body with it, and then they'll show this. And I'm going to point to the peak that actually killed me. From the point where I'm at to that peak was 25,000 miles away, okay? We slowly hike all the way there, and then eventually, when it all came to an end, we see this sign right here, Humphreys Peak, 12,633 feet. Look, I took a picture of that, and I'm showing you, so you don't have to go do that, okay? (laughs) That's all that's up there. 
That's Flagstaff in the background, and then the world ends, it falls off. I'm not sure. I didn't see anything after that. So many times in our lives, we keep going, and it's tough, and we keep stringing step after step after step together, and we get to what looks like a false peak, and the Spirit says, no, this isn't it. But look how far you've come. Keep on, keep on. And so we baby step, baby step, baby step. All fours, it gets windy. We start to get vertigo. We think we're going to die. And we get a little bit further. And then we get a little bit further. And then eventually we get all the way through it. And at 99.9% of the way through it, none of this quite made sense. But it isn't until we get to 100% of the way through it that we look back and we see, God, you know what? You really were doing something there. God, I can look back and I can see how you were growing me, how you were stretching me, how you were at work in my life, and I can see how you were pruning some dead places in my life away from me so that you could bring more life, so that I could flourish as your child, as a branch that is connected to the vine. God, I can see now, looking back, what you were doing. This is what happens for Peter. They arrive at Cornelius's. It's not just Cornelius that is there, but it's his friends, it's his family. And then what does Cornelius do? I don't know, I think maybe Peter thought he was going to hit him in the face. But what he does is he falls at Peter's feet and he begins to worship him. This is a big no-go for Peter. Peter says, stand up. And I'm thinking in the back of Peter's mind, he thinks maybe, okay, what is, what is about to take place here isn't about the worship of me, but it's about the worship of the one who I spent the last three years of my life with. And maybe, just maybe, I get to explain to this man what that is. Peter explains his vision to Cornelius. Cornelius explains his vision to Peter, and then it clicks for Peter. Boom, it all hits at once. This is what the vision was about, and this is why I had to be here in this moment. Again, it's not always going to make sense when you are in the thick of it, but remain faithful. Remain obedient, and most importantly of all, remain reliant on Jesus. Do not try to get through it out of your power, but rely on the power that dwells within you, which is the Holy Spirit. There's so many times I've heard, seen on coffee cups, seen on shirts, and just want to throw them all on the ground, burn them all, that God will never put you through more than you can handle. I don't see that nonsense once in the Bible. I see a whole lot of people who are going through a lot more than what they can handle, but they have to rely, rely on God to get them through. That is exactly who we need to be. That is exactly what we need to do. If we think we just can't come up for air, then we've got to put on our oxygen tank, which is the Holy Spirit. We've got to realize that we're going to be underwater a little bit longer. We've got to keep fighting the waves. We've got to keep fighting the current, but eventually we will surface. And when we do, we will be better swimmers stronger divers. We will be different people than the people that went in the water at first. Rely on the Lord. Next we have declaration. And I better wrap this up quick. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went along doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. We have been reading about this week in and week out. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death. 
by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and who drank with him, and he rose from, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness to everyone who believes in him. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What does Peter do here? He shares the gospel with Cornelius. Peter going to Cornelius put the party invitation in the mail. Now the invitation has been received. It has been opened. And what we see is our fourth point today is that a life on the move with Jesus pairs the gospel with action. When God says go, we go. And once we go and we get there, we share. Realize this isn't in our own strength. This is the the power and the work of the Holy Spirit as well. We cannot force someone to convert to loving Jesus God has to do a work on their heart, so we remain patient. What, what Peter does is once he get there, gets there, he shares the gospel. He meets a need that Cornelius has. Cornelius says, I need you to come talk to me. The Lord has given me, uh, an angel has said, I need to come get you. Peter, you have a vision. And now that you are here, you have physically served me by being present with me. You have met this relational need. And now that my physical need, my relational need has been met, now I need the biggest need met ever, and that is the spiritual need in my life. What Peter does is shares the gospel with him. And what we're about to see is that God goes to work. This is exactly what we do as a church. This is exactly what we've done as a church over and over and over, and we have plenty of opportunities to do that coming up. We have Movie in the Park coming up this Friday. One of the biggest needs in our community is relationships. So we need to get our community around other people in the community, hopefully people that love and serve Jesus so that they can point them to truth, so that they can point them to life, and so that they can discover true life in Jesus. It's not just that. We got Jingle Jam. That's another relational event. We've got an angel tree opportunity where we're going to provide Christmas presents for the kids in this community that need Christmas presents, that don't have any other way to get them, and the school is going to be helping us out with that. We have group lives within group life within the church. We have home groups. We have men's ministry. We have women's ministry, all designed to meet that relational need so that we can grow in Jesus. And not only that, but this coming year and the next couple of years, we are developing a relationship in Baja, Mexico, where we can go and build people homes. People home, build homes for people that they work on these blueberry farms, and the situations, the circumstances that they live in are terrible. So we get to go build a home for them. They get connected to a church. They get to see the love of Jesus. They have a physical need met. And then they have a spiritual need met. Not only that, this year, this coming fall, we have an opportunity to go to Nepal. If you don't know where Nepal is, that's where Mount Everest is. It's a lot bigger than that mountain that I climbed, but not much, okay? It's just a little bit bigger, just like five feet bigger. You still probably die. Actually, a lot of people have. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, In Nepal, we get the opportunity to serve people through VBSs. We get the opportunity to serve people through medical missions. And then coming up again next year, we're going to get to serve on a medical and mental, uh, medical and dental <laughs> mission trip. I need the mental mission trip. 
they're going to get the medical and dental in Honduras or Nicaragua. The final thing that we see in our scripture today is confirmation, and that is in verses 44 through 48. We'll read 44 and 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out even to the Gentiles. This is the third biggest thing that happens in the book of Acts. You have the day of Pentecost, you have the conversion of Saul, and now you have the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles. The party invitation has been opened and it has been accepted. Now Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. There's proof of that in that they speak in tongues. And then there's confirmation of that from Peter, Peter's stamp of approval, and that he says, now it is time to go get baptized. This leads us to our fifth point, that a life on the move with Jesus finds a confirmation of God at work. A life on the move with Jesus finds confirmation of God at work. Think about the things that we've seen. Think about the things that we've experienced as a church for just getting really close now to three years of having worship. We've seen 49 people give their lives to Jesus since we began meeting. As of last weekend, we've seen 40 people go public with their faith in a profession of faith through baptism. God is at work. God is moving. These are numbers, but every number represents a life. Every life represents a story, and every story represents God bringing people in right relationship to himself. All of this because you have remained to be a church that is on the move with Jesus. And so what I'm begging of you this morning is that as we go into 2024, as we go into however long the Lord has us to be a church in this community, that we would be a church that is reliant on the Spirit, that expects God to move, that sees confirmation of it all around us, but continues to stay on the move, no matter how awkward, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how hard, no matter how tough. Those are basically the same, but maybe they might mean something different to you. No matter how rough it gets, we stay dependent and we keep on moving. Let's pray.